When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting week of Trashy Divorces. Hey, y'all, I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. Welcome. This week, we're back with more listener requests. I'm playing on the Season 7, Episode 11 theme, 7-Eleven, with some oh, tumble and dice. There you go. One of my favorite songs from the songwriting team of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Tumble and Dice is found on 1972's Exile on Main Street album. And if you want to really listen to the song... Check out Linda Ronstadt. She does the best cover version of it. Musical spiderweb, y'all. I'm bringing up the back half, covering the trash candy that is Mick Jagger this week. But Stacey, you're starting us off strong with... I, I've got the king of trash, Hugh Hefner. He, gotcha. God, he had an empire and he... It's such a strange story. It was a really interesting research project. So um, thanks, Kimberly, for pointing me toward it. Yeah, you're... Uh, your Mick Jagger story, there's it ties into a lot of stories we've done in the past, like with Jerry Hall and all that. So it's a whole another week of webs, y'all. Before we tumble the dice, let's take out our magic mirror and give some love to our new patrons that joined us this week over on Patreon. Yeah, thank you very much to Eleanor A, Kelly N, Angie C, Anne Marie S, and Angela K. Jill C, Brittany M, Megan H, Channing W, y'all rock, big love and thanks. We have two new super supporters as well, Trisha and Karen S. Wowza! Y'all are the very best. Big love and thanks to all of y'all coming back this week to listen on Sunday, as well as our continuing supporting audience on Patreon this week. What did everybody hear? It was a good week over there. It was a good week over there. So you followed up more with um, the When Done Gone series. Oh, yeah. We talked about salary disparity between the cast members of Gone with the Wind. Yeah. If you want to get yourself angry, yeah. go listen to that. Hattie McDaniel as well. And in addition, Margaret Mitchell's Hidden Legacy of Funding Black Education and Hospitals in Atlanta. Oh, I did a deep dive into conscious uncoupling. And Stacy, this week you launched the Trashy Family Values series where we had some um, Cleveland facts, as in Grover and his sister Rose Cleveland. <laughs> it was a fantastic story. Well done. <laughs> A lot happening over there. Oh, we also have another episode coming from the continuing series that I've been doing with Katie and Nathan from Queen's Podcast, where we are getting down with Six the Musical. You can check out those episodes and almost 400 more on patreon.com slash trashy divorces. I think that's the business. I think so. So, Alicia, you ready to roll? Call me the tumbling dice. Go, go, go. This week you're bringing us the the father of the Playboys. We talk about a lot of Playboys on this show. This week, we do. We have the bunny-eared grandpappy of them all. Oh my, Hugh Hefner. And this came from a on our in our Facebook group. Kimberly was sort of talking about some of the his kids, some of the people associated with this. And I know Playboy used to be a very important media property that just isn't now. And I got curious. I went down a little. Oh. A rabbit hole. 
Let's bunny hop down. What'd you find out? All right. So this was probably true for you as well. Hugh Hefner was really a shadow of himself by the time I was old enough to know who he was and what he did. I think for a lot of Gen X and later, Playboy's stature as a paragon of class and sophistication in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is hard to square with the idea of like a silly magazine with centerfolds. But, you know, at his peak, Hef commanded not only some of the hottest night spots in the country, but also a platform that mingled nude centerfolds with some of the most brilliant writers alive. Oh, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. I read it for the articles. I do remember as a kid, there it was were, a huge, well, like there were a few occasions when like a celebrity that I followed, there was, it was just in the, like a big Playboy interview with so-and-so. And I was like, well, I guess I'll never get to read that because no internet, right? Like, all right. So anyway, this mix of like brilliant writers, thought provoking interviews, like cool ideas and, and like nudie pics of girls. I don't know that that's really been replicated. I don't think that... You know, Larry Flint's penthouse went out of its way to be that. I think it was more... You've got a look on your face. I'm listening. I don't have my glasses on. Sorry. Uh, So (laughs) the whole thing really feels like a throwback to the Mad Men days, which I think makes sense. So Hugh Hefner is a man with a complicated legacy. As we noted back when you covered Marilyn Monroe, he launched Playboy with nude photos she had made before she was famous. She never gave consent for them to be used. Hef never compensated her. They never even met in life. And when this dude died in 2017, he was interred beside her for all time at Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles in a crypt he purchased for $75,000 in 1992. That's just yikes. It just feels icky. Icky. Super, super icky. On the other hand, he found the mores of his day boring and needlessly constricting, and he was outspoken in his condemnation of what would come to be known as homophobia. He was there with jobs and support at key moments for black performers, and he beamed out a fully integrated variety and talk show as early as 1959 as Playboy's Penthouse. Wow. Gloria Steinem was famously not a fan of the Playboy bunny culture that he created, and I can understand her distaste. Oh, yeah, she was a bunny for a minute, wasn't she? She went undercover, yeah. But it did give a lot of ambitious young women the income to live independently in an era where that was not assured. And it gave some the profile to get their foot in the door in the entertainment business. So again, just a mixed legacy. So let's dive in. Let's talk about it. All right. Hugh Marston Hefner was born in Chicago on April 9th, 1926. So he's an Aries. Okay. He was the first of two sons of an accountant and a teacher. And congrats on your timing, Hef. When he was three and a half, the Great Depression began. So I'm sure his early childhood and his brother Keith's, who was just born in 29, like just... Slide on into it, Keith. That was really an awful lot of fun, I would guess. At 18, Hef enlists in the Army. World War II was still happening at the time. And he was put to work as an illustrator and writer for two years, something that he had shown an aptitude for throughout his life. And it was for, like, it just says for one of the military papers. I do not know if one of these papers might have been Stars and Stripes or Yank. Either way. Could go either way. Could could be something else entirely. But I do know that after he launched Playboy, Hef recruited one of the cartoonists for those publications, specifically to inquire whether he could publish comic strips that the military had censored because they were too racy. Oh, my. Yeah. All right. So after a stint in the army, he got a psych degree with a double minor in creative writing and art. It took him two and a half years. This guy is a very smart guy. Like, he graduated with, you know, a major and two double minors in two and a half years. okay. And soon after, he landed a gig as a copywriter at Esquire. 
He would quit that in 1952 after they denied him a $5 raise. And uh, <laughs> I'll show you. I'll show you. And yeah, he got to work assembling a bunch of small, like personal investors. I think there were like 45 of them. He raised about $9,000 to launch Playboy. And I think there were 70,000 copies of its first, the Marilyn Monroe episode. Holy cats. You could do a lot with not a lot of money back then. Yeah. It's impressive. So 1953, uh, like his mom threw in $1,000, not because she wanted to fund a pornographic magazine, but because she she trusted her son. <laughs> it's going to be fine. It'll be fine. Okay, so let's back up a little. While at college, he fell in love hard with a woman named Millie Williams, and they married in 1949. They were separated by 55, and although the marriage would technically last a decade and produce two children, it was not happy. Millie was not the one. No. uh, One story that I think was only revealed in the 2000s is that days before their wedding, back in 49, Millie disclosed that she had cheated on him and slept with another man. And back then, like virginity was a huge deal. And apparently, Hef had saved himself for marriage. And so that was, he said that was like one of the most devastating moments of his life. Yeah. Wow. But lemons into lemonade. Oh, tell me. Apparently during the marriage, if he wanted to see someone else, he would just be like, well, you slept with someone else. Why can't I sleep with someone else? And so I think they were both by the end of it, seeing other people. Wow. It was not a mutually. Quite a trade-off. Yeah. His uh, oldest child, his daughter, uh, we'll get to her. I think her name is Christine. She was basically abandoned by him when she was three. She said that they would, like, have dinner maybe five or six times a year when she was little. They weren't really... He was Hugh Hefner. He was busy. (laughs) Yeah, just... Yeah. Anyway. All right. So by the time they divorced, the workaholic Hef had grown the magazine from around 52,000 subscribers in its first year to more than a million Whoa. Yep. There was Playboy's Penthouse on television for a couple of seasons starting in 1959. And I'm pretty sure there's a Mrs. Maisel episode that... I'm thinking so, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that plays off of that. 1963, Hef gets his first obscenity charge. Maybe his only. Oh, I'm not goody. sure. But yeah, Playboy published nude shots of Jane Mansfield. She was in bed and there was a man present in the shots. This was just Can't far do that. too far for... Well, you... Turns out you can. But yeah, I mean, it was a line that some in power were not comfortable crossing. Hugh Hefner was arrested. No. This case was taken to trial. But at the end of the day, the jury could not agree to convict him. And so it was it was a mistrial. And this is sort of like Playboy and Hef at this point are become staunch First Amendment advocates. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Hef had a number of long-term partners during his life, including groups of them. Excuse me? Yeah. So toward the end of the 1960s, we'll, we'll get to the groups. That's He really doesn't know how to let go there. of previous damage, does he? he no. You got to let it go. Move on. Breathe in, breathe out, brother. Like I said, complicated legacy of this guy. So Interesting. All right. So toward the end of the 60s, he meets a woman named Barbie Benton. Yeah. She is 18. He is 42. Ooh. And while she was initially reluctant to accept his invitation to go out with him. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, they eventually struck up a long romance. She talks about, though, she was a student at UCLA, and she talks about how the entire dorm hall would, like, rush to windows and balconies and the door and, like, to watch her step outside to get into Hugh Hefner's limousine. Like, just 
horrifying. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she says that when um, when he first there was a great quip when he first asked her out, she said, "Well, I've never dated anyone older than twenty four and he said, "That's okay, I haven't either." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Great. Okay, huge age gap here, huge experience gap here. But apparently Hef was like strangely hidebound about a lot of things. Like he was weirdly a homebody. This kind of explains the Playboy Mansion stuff. Like he he just he brought the party to himself because he didn't want to go out so much. I mean, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. So, you know, 18 year old, whatever, 20 year old Barbie decides like, Hef, you need to see the world. You need to travel. Oh, like the only place he'd been outside of the States was to go and open one of the Playboy clubs in London. He just... What's the point in having a rich middle-aged boyfriend if you can't yeah. do something with it? Exactly. I'm with Bambi. Right. So, Barbie. Sorry. I'm with Barbie. So it turns out that Hef was not much of a food adventurer, which I think you can relate to. And he got a little freaked out when they get to Paris and she's got a table for them reserved at Maxime's. Oh, that's world a big deal. Yeah, yeah, world famous Maxime's. Oh, wow. Dude is like, what are they going to feed me there? What am I going to eat there? What What is on the menu there? And so she conspires <laughs> with Hef's butler nope. to like run over to the restaurant that morning with Nobody. the recipe for his favorite fried uh-uh. chicken. So as we know, chefs in Paris are famously accommodating of the tastes of American tourists. For fried chicken? I mean, frying a chicken is perfectly acceptable. Can you imagine being the valet? Knock, knock, knock. Right. Hey, uh, I need to speak to your head chef. No! Chicken le fry. No. Allors. Like, when you asked for your burger well done in Paris, it was the same way when I asked for, like, decaf at a coffee shop in Amsterdam. They're like, we don't do, if you want decaf, smoke pot. We really do have some travel adventures, don't we? Woo. (laughs) Okay, so... Somehow, though, Hef's butler persuaded the chef to play along. Oh, my. And so when Hef and Barbie show up that night for dinner, again, he's sweating bullets. He is genuinely scared. And then out comes a plate of his, his favorite, favorite fried, fried chicken. chicken. Oh, well, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's weird. A little weird. You eat what the chef brings you. I mean. That burger was delicious. Not if you're Hef. Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was really pleased that you loved it. I mean, you kept looking at it because it was still mooing at you, but made a lot of noise (laughs) but uh no but you did seem to like it paris it's magical city viva la france barbie bailed after eight years and many 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 slid fried chicken recipes through the door infidelities um yeah he just he was not into monogamy although have remained friends with her and really many of the women that he shared periods of his life with This was pretty much par for the course for decades to come for him. He would not marry again until 1989, which is a full 30 years after his divorce from Millie. Yeah. Wow. Millie, by the way, remarried after half, and that eventually kind of went south as well. And when she divorced husband number two, she was pretty financially devastated. So their daughter, Christy, uh, who I think was about college age at this point, she finally goes to her extremely rich father and is like, look, Dad, here's the situation. Mom does not want you to know this. She's never asked you for anything. Can you help? And so Hef buys her a house. Oh, well, that's nice. And I think he brought her in as a Playboy employee. Like there was a 1991 New York Times article that mentioned that she worked at Playboy 
Um, oh, good. So yeah, he like provided for her in his own half way. Huh. But, but the house is certainly helpful. She apparently lived there the rest of her life. I cannot confirm that she is deceased, actually. So yeah. may still be living there. Good on Millie. Do not know. For all its mid-century glamour, by the start of the 80s, Playboy the Company, which had sprawled to include clubs, casinos, recording studios, film productions, publishing, resorts, and much, much more, was in what looked like a death spiral. Hefner had spent decades letting his ambition define his reach and ended up with this, like, mini-tentacled beast that was just hemorrhaging cash out of near and sundry places. So at this point, his daughter, Christy, took the helm, 1982, which was a really big deal for, like, they, they played this as some sort of feminist step forward, like, Hef is... You may think he's one way, but actually he's all for women climbing the ladder of corporate and it's all that. PR move. Well, not just because she genuinely was very like she Working. saw the pro- yeah she saw the problems and really she came in with a plan to slim things down. It does seem like she was able to save the company in the near term, but Hef was never able to give up enough control to let her create a Playboy Enterprises that could thrive mm. in the 21st century. Because think about it, like in the 80s, you've got like video, st- like VCRs become a thing. And so at that point, you can go to your local video store. If you were not around for this, there was often a curtained off back room in your local video store, which is where the adults could, like I was a kid, I was never allowed back there, but like the adults right. could go back and get various kinds of pornographic films it was all, like... On the DL. Hush, hush. Yeah, it's strange. Like, even in small towns, like, small rural towns would have video stores that had back rooms. Like, they catered to their communities. And there were networks of pornographic film distributors. And just a, the market was changing. And anyway, like, Hef was not keeping up with that. So... You don't have to hide your magazines under your bed anymore. You can just go down to the local video store. Yeah, I mean, if you're a bachelor, you got a VCR and a TV. You got a fun weekend party. I mean, <laughs> okay, so the Playboy Clubs, which were home of the bunny training program that Gloria Steinem had gone undercover to write about, they were all closed up by the mid 80s. They'd been uh, losing money for years. Sure. Uh, other money losing divisions were jettisoned, and the bleeding mostly stopped under Christie's watch. Probably the most significant thing that happened to Hef in the 80s, though was that he had a stroke early in 1985. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. He was 58, and this was it was one of those wake-up calls. It's one of those health events that if you survive it, you really make some changes. So he quit smoking, he quit drinking. And I wouldn't say the party at the Playboy Mansion ended. Maybe it shut down a little earlier. Maybe it wasn't quite so wild. In 88, Christy took over. She was became the CEO, president okay. and CEO. And in 89, Hef finally walked down the aisle for a second time. Oh, goody. Determined to see if he could make monogamy work for him. How'd that go? Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) He did not. All right. This was with Kimberly Conrad, who at the age of 26 was 36 years younger than her new husband. I really do. They seem to have really been happy for a while. They kind of quickly had two little kids you know, Hef had this new lease on life. He'd made about cha- to say, yeah, feeling better, fresh glow. And his new bride, Kimberly, is a Moulton, Alabama girl. And so I am certain that she believed it was her responsibility to shepherd her new but older husband into a truly healthy lifestyle and live forever. 
In other words, it was the dreaded trashy divorce's red flag mantra of no, I can, can change him. I can fix him. Fix don't, him. I can don't. save him. You can't. <laughs> After about nine years in 98, things just kind of petered out between them. But again, they had two kids. Kimberly moved into a home with their boys next door to the Playboy Mansion. Oh, well, that's nice. And they remained separated but married through 2010 when the youngest turned 18. That's a long time. It's a long time. To be separated. But yeah, she didn't want a divorce because of the kids. And so, like, I think the day that their youngest turned 18, have filed. So He could do his thing. She could do her thing. His thing in the 2000s was completely off the rails. Oh, no. Yeah, Tell he me. came out of this relationship. Just another new man. Just a new man all over again. Shed that skin. And I Yikes. guess there was, like, the way that his people, there's, there's an E- true Hollywood story about him and like the people around him are like you know he'd been off the market for like a decade and there was this whole new generation had of playmates who there's still 24 hadn't, out there had not had a chance to frolic with half yeah <laughs> let's roll those dice again yeah so for a while he had a pack of seven girlfriends nope yup <laughs> um, then a bunch of them left and it became a group of three oh. There was a reality TV show called Girls Next Door that followed them. And I think there were even two sets of three. I think it changed no. over time. So this was like a show on for like six seasons or something. Oh, my God. Horrifying like that. So we're going to link to the E! True Hollywood story about Hef. Oh, I bet it's fascinating. It was it, it was actually. Kinda, uh, yeah. And there is no less than Pamela Anderson in it explaining that when Playboy launched... Pornography was not readily available in most of America, so Playboy really set the agenda of the market that it was creating. But by the 2000s, everybody had a direct line to websites with every imaginable fetish and kink, and the purpose of Playboy and of Hef himself was increasingly unclear. become obsolete, yeah. He was no longer a symbol of cool midlife bachelorhood and sophisticated tastes. He was an old man frolicking with barely legal women who were, to be fair, mostly using him for their own aspirations of stardom. He would marry one more time. Oh, of course he will. Of course he will. <laughs> so originally slated for June 14th of 2011, fiance Crystal Harris, a full 60 years younger than her would-be husband, <sighs> called off the wedding five days before. I Un wonder why. Uncomfortably, Hef oh. had done the normal thing he did when he got married or had a long-term girlfriend or had a group of long-term girlfriends which was showcase his girlfriend or fiancé in his magazine. So the July issue, which arrived on newsstands and in subscribers' homes in mid-June, just in time for the wedding Big that didn't day. happen, featured as its centerfold what it described as Mrs. Crystal Hefner. What a weird... Is that just like... Is that showing off a trophy to other men? Yeah, it's a is weird that... flex. It's a weird flex. Okay. Yeah. So... During this period where they were on break, because they do eventually reconcile and get married. <laughs> we were on a break. Things got kind of ugly. Crystal went on Howard Stern and explained that they had only had sex once in their two years together. Oh, shit. And that it lasted about two seconds and that she had never seen Hef naked and that she was not attracted to him. Why would you get married? She did say she loved him. Oh. So then they took things to Twitter, where Hef said that he felt sorry for her, and she seems like she's lost, and like, hey, she was engaged to you. I think that's a fair bet. <laughs> and, you know, that she had clearly lied to him about her feelings. Later, they announced on Twitter that they were back together. Oh, good. Young. Young. Love. 
Young love. They married at the Playboy Mansion on New Year's Eve, 2012. Okay. He was 86 and she was 26. Wow. Hugh Hefner died on September 27th of 2017 at the age of 91 from sepsis. Hef's fortune, which at one point exceeded a quarter billion dollars in stock alone. Holy cats. Was estimated at somewhere between 15 and 26 million at the time of his death. And it was uh, established as a trust, which is a very normal way for wealthy people to um, limit uh, estate taxes upon their deaths. However, you know, he's got these beneficiaries. So there's the four kids, there's Crystal, and there may very well be plenty of other people that he's that he's provisioning for. Okay. In the trust documents, in his will, the tr- like they're prohibited from receiving money if they become addicted to drugs or alcohol. Really? Like if they're using non-prescription stuff in a in an unhealthy way, the trustees are allowed to cut them off. The trustees can require them to take drug tests. Well, those are some stipulations. Yeah, if the trustees suspect that there is substance misuse happening, they are allowed to withhold payments until the beneficiary shows that they've like, I don't know, completed rehab or like otherwise gotten clean, gotten their act back together. Interesting. And then they can give them money again. Like Okay. You'd think the king of debauchery would be a little looser, but in fact, he's Don't just, do drugs, kids. just a contrast. Wow. You know, like, party, 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 within bounds. I mean, it's like, okay, Hef. Not that hard. Party lightly. <laughs> it's the Playboy way. I mean, it's very interesting. All right, so according to a July 2020 item in page six, Crystal, Hef's 34-year-old widow is now in a happy relationship with a 32-year-old engineer, and we wish them all the best. Oh, good for Crystal. Age-appropriate. Good on you. Good on you. Crystal sold that house to Christine from Selling Sunset. Right. He left her a house valued at 3 to $5 million, is what That's I saw. That's Crystal. And- yeah. Hefner's widow. Christine mm-hmm. is living in that house with her new... I'm sorry. Christine you've been, didn't buy that house. You've been binging. Christine's fiance bought that house. Okay, yeah. You've been binging Selling Sunsets. And uh, you were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's in this. I'm not proud. There's nothing... There's... <laughs> hey, our Facebook group on. loves it. So there you go. Whoa. All right. So contextualizing Hugh Hefner is complicated. It's hard for me to say that America isn't better for him being out there blowing up the 50s norms that were strangling our society, as were the beatniks and civil rights crusaders organizing bus boycotts in Montgomery and the Mattachine Society leading a vanguard on gay rights activism. Like, it was a time that needed jolting, and he was part of that, and that's awesome. But as much as he personally claimed to be a feminist, and he definitely personally claimed to be a feminist— I don't think anybody looks back at the Playboy Bunny era as a great stride forward in women's autonomy or (laughs) at the centerfolds as a great step forward in women's empowerment. Yeah. And in spite of his iconoclastic entry into media in the 50s, in his later years, Hef turned out to be an extremely conservative figure who, ironically enough, strangled his own company with an extreme risk aversion during his daughter's years trying to grow it into the era of home video and rapidly expanding cable television and the internet. It's a real irony. A guy who made a fortune thumbing his nose at mid-century orthodoxy almost immediately fell into his own version of Midwestern conservatism. His just included a lot of young blonde women. It doesn't. All right, f- all right, all right. That's exactly it. Yeah, like it. It doesn't feel like any kind of revolution, but maybe that was really all he was going for. Maybe he got the revolution he wanted. Do you remember how Millie hurt him? 
that one time <laughs> when he was a youth. And he never recovered. Apparently. Hugh Hefner. I feel like this one just gets a grotto full of debauched <laughs> trash cans for decades. <laughs> the number has no limit. Perfect. I, I don't know. The limit does not exist. So thank you, Kimberly, for bringing that up. That was an interesting little little, little bunny hole to hop down. Huh. Well done. Let's take a quick break. Sounds good. And tumble the dice and we're coming on back with Rock and Roll Legend. I can't even dance like that. I don't think anyone can. He learned how to dance from Tina Turner. He did. He did. We, yep. All right. We'll be right back. See you on the flip. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, talk to one of them they stay anonymous i can't hang up that's all the rules i never know what's going to happen we get serious ones i've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison i've talked to people who survived mass shootings crazy funny ones i talked to a guy with a goose laugh somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends i never know what's going to happen it's a great show subscribe today beautiful anonymous so alicia i understand this week you have been gathering no moss whatsoever (laughs) none at all none at all this week Lead singer of the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger. This was recommended by Robin C., Sarah O., Carrie A., Jess I., and all the way back in the August of 2019, throwback machine, (laughs) Eliza K. Mm, Okay. Often requested. Thanks, Mm y'all. This is trashy. Whoa. What a story. As I mentioned, Mick Jagger, just want you to know he's a Leo man. He's born July 26th. I love this quote by him. In rock and roll, you have to deliver. 
I think this story will prove that out. Let's get into his one definite wife. His one other wife, depending on how the court sees it. That was right. I'm a little familiar. His eight children by five women. Yikes. And the other women who busted up those relationships. Buckle up. He's dated like every model who's ever modeled, right? Everyone. Okay. Everyone. That's what I thought. Michael. His parents are teachers. His mom is also a hairdresser. He grows up in Dotford. Meets a nice bloke, Keith Richards. They reconnect in their teens and both really dig the blues and they form up with all their buddies too, Brian Jones and Charlie Watts. Y'all, there's a ton of resources if you want to know the history about the Rolling Stones. This is the point I need to get you to. Michael Jagger now goes by Mick. The Rolling Stones are the bad boy's answer to the Beatles. And these dudes have been rocking for six decades. I'm just skipping to the trashy bits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. First love. Marianne Faithful busts into the scene. This is a good time. This is mid-60s. She calls it the best time of her life. This is long before the drugs begin. She'll meet the Rolling Stones at a party and is already a huge star with her hit as time goes by. She's dating this guy, John Dunbar, and hey, Marianne gets pregnant. She marries John. She has a baby. And it's looking like a conventional life is in her future until Marianne realizes that she has most definitely picked the wrong husband if she's looking for a bougie kind of life. She's had the baby. She's playing two sets a night. She's, like, at her wit's end. Enter again, Mick Jagger. And she ignores him for months. And Marianne Faithful will say, completely, I ignored him. Not realizing, I didn't know this was the dead sure way to ensure that he would hassle me more and more. Have you met a Leo man? That's the gravy that entices. Okay. Tell him no, right? So Mick is hooked. And as Marianne Faithful tells it, he's intelligent and funny and charming and she falls in love. And it's sort of the meeting of rock and aristocratic worlds. Like she's landed in a way that Mick is not necessarily. And I don't know what kind of power Mick Jagger has. I mean, I can guess that it has a lot to do with uh, shoop-ing. Give me some of that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to be crass. But Marianne Faithful is going to leave everything, husband, baby, to be the glamorous star on Mick Jagger's arm. Marianne's going to devote her time and energy into his music. And in so doing, kind of loses her inner self. And the Stones are doing their thing, but the women that are all with the Rolling Stones are not allowed in the studio. And, hey, drugs, acid is making its play on the youth of, you know, the, the world. world. Mm -hmm. And then we get to Redlands in February of 67. So Keith Richards has bought a country home. This actually, Anne Boleyn is rumored to have visited there. It's a grade two listed. Keith Richards will buy this property, moves in his dog, Rat Dog. That's right. his dog's name. And when does Anne Boleyn visit? <laughs> in her time machine. In her time machine. And Keith Richards decides, hey, this is a great weekend to host an LSD party, which is oh, going I awesome. Mean, obviously. Yeah, it's going great. It's like Mushroom Day in the Hamptons. Right. But 24 cops bust in. Whoa. Okay, so the cops come in, and there's outrageous clothing or no clothing 
and a bunch of stars stoned out of their minds in like alternate perception land. And here's Marianne faithful, nude, wrapped in a fur rug. And Natch cops are like, these thugs are raping this innocent unicorn child of a girl woman. And most certainly she was drugged and raped by these men. So Mick and Keith are going to prison. Wow. Mm -hmm. What happens in this is that Mick and Keith, it gives them more bad boy street cred. Mm -hmm. Whereas this flex is totally opposite for Marianne Faithful. She's diminished, demeaned, trampled. And now her image becomes this like fallen angel. Oh, I am. Oh, I'm so angry. Which begins her descent really into the bad times and the drugs because Marianne buys into it. Like this fall from grace that she has because it's every woman who's ever blamed for Mm -hmm. a man's it. Yeah. uh, Pick pick them out. Yeah. Yeah. Any scandal involving a woman. It goes badly for the woman and the men around all like seem to skip away scot-free. I'm sure there are exceptions, but it it is, they prove the rule. I mean. So she's left her husband and her child for this relationship where she is, right? So all of this is going to play out internally inside Marianne. Yeah. And she will say, everyone was taking drugs and you're young and you're rich. There's always going to be creepy people coming along to give you drugs. Before you can think twice, you are in trouble. So now Marianne's the fallen angel. She's going to co-write a song with Mick called Sister Morphine, which is her next single, which is a song about a man dying in a hospital after he's had a car accident, right? She writes it with Mick, but from the title alone, people are like, come on, Sister Morphine? Like, how did you think that was going to play in 1969? It's pulled within two days. Oh my God. From... Shock and horror from record store shelves. People are riled up. Like, why are you promoting drugs? Because <laughs> they're fun. <laughs> it's 1969. But you're saying it was in no way, it was not a drug promoting song. It was a story about a person who'd been badly hurt. And that is the narrative theme okay. of the song. But maybe, maybe there was a little drug most promotion. Most certainly there's some double entendre. <laughs> Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, the irony twist of this is that the Rolling Stones will put that same song, Sister Morphine, on their Sticky Fingers album. A few years later, nobody ever mentions it. Well, yeah, but it's the Stones. They promote drugs. Well, double standard much. (laughs) Okay, by this point, in 69, 70, Mick has already been seeing another lady on the side. Marianne is going to move into acting and way more drugs, and Mick and Marianne Faithful are not lasting. So what starts for them in 1966 will be over and done by 1970, And Marianne Faithful will say, being the kept plaything of a great rock star was not my destiny. I really loved him. If we were in any other situation but the gilded cage, we could have had a wonderful life together. But the gilded cage wasn't really my bag. There's a new bag in town. And that's a baby bag filled with diapers and formula and shit. Because the lady that Mick Jagger has been stepping out with, Mm. her name is Marsha Hunt. She's pregnant. And she's going to deliver kid number one. Marsha's an actress, a singer, a model. She'll go on to be a novelist. The song Brown Sugar is about her. Mm-hmm. Different times, okay. changing times. So, so interracial romance. Absolutely. Was that controversial? A little the... bit. Okay. Well, they kept it really quiet mm. because <laughs> Marsha's married. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Mick. <laughs> and 
Marcia was asked to model for he's, the Rolling Stones. He's got a type, doesn't uh, he? He's got a type. <laughs> She's asked to model for the Rolling Stones honky tonk women photo, which is how they meet. And they begin this like nine, ten month affair. But she's married, but now there's a baby, and they both know they really don't want to be together. But Marsha Hunt would really like his child claimed and taken care of financially. So this is going to result in a 10-year-long battle where Mick Jagger's like, nope. And Marsha Hunt continues to go back to court over and over to fight for the rights of her kid. What a dirtbag resulting in her finally winning the suit 10 years later oh in 1979. God. Yeah. Oh, Mick, what is wrong with you? Oh, it gets worse. Enter Bianca Perez Mora Macias. <laughs> Bianca is going to be actual wife number one. She meets Mick at an after party in France in September of 1970. Mick and Marsha are done. It's fine. A love affair is born. Bianca and Mick. In love. She's happy to hang on his arm. She gets pregnant, too. So these two are going to marry May 12th, 1971 in San Tropez. And whoa, this wedding. <laughs> There's a great article from Larry Getlin from the New York Post in 2016 about this whole grand spectacle. So this wedding happens in <laughs> a few different ways. <laughs> 75 friends. Mick has flown in to attend, including Paul McCartney and his family and Ringo Starr and Peter Frampton and Ronnie Wood. And Paul and Ringo are fighting. So they're well, seated far apart. Awesome. So the wedding morning in French law, you have to declare the property that you hold in common. And it is here at this time that Bianca learns that Mick Jagger owns basically nothing and threatens to call the whole thing off. But on the flip side of this, there's a 28-page prenup that she is supposed to sign. So she balked. She's out. Like She wants to be done the morning of the wedding, which would leave Mick humiliated in front of his fancy, fancy guests. And I guess they work it out. So French law, one conquered. It's pesky stuff, though, because French law also states that before the church ceremony can be done, there needs to be a civil ceremony at the town hall, which is open to the public. This all seems very complicated. Mick Jagger goes to the mayor of the town. Like, man, can't you do something? This doesn't need to be public. If we have to go get married in your stupid courthouse, that's fine. But right. can't you close it? <laughs> and the mayor's like, I don't have any power to change that. Them's the rules, Mick. But meanwhile, paparazzi from all over the world have flown into this town to see the wedding, to get what they could get. Yeah, yeah. Hungry little scraps for yeah. the rock and roll wedding of the century, right? Nope. Now the whole town hall is open. Sure. And you've got press, paparazzi, parents, rock stars. Like, it is a PR person's nightmare so there had been no research into how zero this would it gets worse for the pr guy logistics i don't have his name written down but there is a pr guy and he has a really bad day the soon-to-be ex-pr guy okay so everybody like press paparazzi 
People vacationing. What? Mick Jagger's getting married in town today? Let's awesome. go get a drink and go watch. Okay. They're like, this is better than our wildest dreams. So here's Mick and Bianca in their wedding clothes, pushing their way through the crowds down to the town hall. It's packed. Mick's father is horrified. The parents' place that are normally, like, is normally next to the groom. Mm Mm-hmm. Mick's dad's place has been taken over by the head of Atlantic Records. It's like a trashy mess. No, wait, it gets worse. So after this town hall debacle is over, everybody heads off to the church. But the PR guy, who, as we have mentioned, is having a very, very bad day. So he decides to lock the doors to the church so none of the riffraff can get in, which leaves Mick Jagger locked out of the church having to bang on the doors to get in. It's not a perfect wedding day. Is this why people hire wedding planners, perhaps? (laughs) Don't hire a PR guy. (laughs) Okay, so there's a reception. Julie Christie is there. So is Brigitte Bardot. They're dancing the frug together. The band that plays at the wedding is Stephen Stills, Terry Reed, and the members of Santana. There is a source. And this witness will state that Keith Richards, who wore a Nazi uniform to the wedding, would have done the frug too, but he was passed out flat on his back with his mouth open. Yeah. Marianne Faithful, abandoned girlfriend. Uh huh. Well, she's not there, is she? She is not there, but she celebrates in her own special way. Quote, sleeping off the effects of a shot of Valium and three vodka martinis that she took to deal with the fact that Mick was marrying someone else. She will sleep that off in a cell at the police station in the Paddington Green section of London. It's not a good night for her. Years later in Marianne's memoir, she will note the physical resemblance between Bianca and Mick, calling it narcissism and saying Mick married himself. I mean, from the little I know about Mick Jagger, that's not outside of the realm of possibility. There's a lot of contention about this wedding. Three men will claim that they are actually the best man. Keith Richards. There's a sax player, Bobby Keys, and also Roger Vadim. Oh. Who's Joan, at this point married nope, to Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda's <laughs> ex-husband. Okay. Okay. Current husband at the time. So there's a quote at the time this uh, columnist Hepworth will write, quote, The Jagger wedding was the shabbiest free-for-all in the history of both rock and marriage and skin-crawlingly embarrassing for all the key participants. (laughs) Sounds like. Unquote. Okay. Trashy. Our kind of wedding. So 1971, marriage is, you know, going along fine enough, even through all the chaos from which it began. Child is born. Bianca likes being on Mick's arm and... Now she's become the darling of the jet set. She's partying at Studio 54. She's friends with Andy Warhol and Halston. But hey, have you met Mick? There's going to be an affair with the legendary B.B. Buell, who at this time is in the middle of her love affair with Todd Rundgren and also fooling around with Steven Tyler from Aerosmith on the side, which Why will not? make the baby live Tyler. This story is trash candy action-packed. All right. Mick and BB don't last, but that affair was so much fun. How about another? Why not? Enter young blonde Texas girl Jerry Hall. Mm. They start dating in 1977. Now, a little backstory on Jerry. She gets over to Europe because of an insurance settlement. She's in a car accident when she's a teenager and is allergic to penicillin, and so she sues the hospital 
gets enough cash to take her 16-year-old self to Paris with a suitcase full of Fredericks of Hollywood clothes that her mother has made to make it big. Okay. She's graduated from high school. She made all A's. She's not a dumb girl. Jerry's going to move from Paris to Saint-Tropez. We're in Saint-Tropez. She will be hanging out in cafes with Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Salvador Dali. Okay. A who's who? A who's who. Jerry's going to be dating Brian Ferry from Roxy Music. Okay. When And things are going okay for Jerry Hall. The Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, like having a boyfriend, won't stop Jerry from hooking up with Mick at a particularly body party at Studio 54 one night and great. But not great for Bianca, who will file for the really, really one divorce that Mick will have in 1978. She'll escape with a cool million, which is not a lot, for a dude whose net worth is rumored to be way, way more than that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 350 to 500 million is the range that I can find for him in 2020. Yeah. Bianca will say the marriage ended on our wedding day. Can't imagine why. It's a good party but mick is free to do whatever he's going to do and he does it it sounds like he felt pretty free to do what he was going to do with or without being married so that's it mick jagger jerry hall partner up from 1977 on they move in the love affair is on but don't be fooled like it's not exclusive he's linked to heiress Catherine guinness He's linked to Natasha Frazier. He's out with New York clubber Gwen Rivers and the singer Nadine Expert. Can't stop, won't stop. You make me want to shoot. All right, so Mick and Jerry are going to go on to have four kids together, bringing Mick Jagger's total kid count now to six, if you're keeping track. After 13 years, Mick and Jerry, couple, finally decide it's time to tie a loose, loose knot. But Jerry thinks they're not solid. So they go to Indonesia and get married in a Hindu religious ceremony. This is November 1990 in Bali. I was going to say there was some, yeah, like disputed, later disputed Bali wedding. Yeah. Well, there's a wedding. There are pictures. There are two religious leaders there. There are sacrificed chickens. It goes on for six hours. It's awesome. Everything's going great until, well... It's not, because Mick Jagger's totally sleeping around, and this is when his affair with Carla Bruni happens, 1991 to 1994-ish. I think you mean future first lady of France, Carla Bruni. That is what I do. And I guess Jerry's okay with her Leo man until Mick gets a new girlfriend, Brazilian model, Luciana Morad, and she's pregnant. There's a DNA test and all that jazz, and they began their affair a while ago, But I guess this baby is just one step over the line for Jerry. So Jerry's like, great, I'm going to divorce court. She wants 50 million. Oh, right. Okay. They've been together 21 years. They have four kids together. I want 50 million. And and they're married. It was six hours. It was, there were chickens. (laughs) And Mick is like, not so fast, love. I don't believe we were ever really married. See, that was just a pretend ceremony. We never filed any civil papers, and I know all how that goes because of French law back from the first marriage that went south. Sorry, babe. And Jerry's pissed. And she's going to take it to court 
where the couple, after some wrangling, will be granted an annulment in 1999. There's no divorce. The marriage is said to be null and void, like it just never happened. Mixed bank account is going to tell a different story, although details of the settlement are undisclosed. It is rumored to be about 30 million pounds. Yeah, I would think that after two decades, four kids, that even if you weren't technically married, that your your proto-spouse has a claim. <laughs> I love this quote by Jerry Hall. All of our friends are the same friends. We like the same people. We got on great, except he slept with lots of other people, which was horrible. Otherwise, he was perfect. And now she's Mrs. Rupert Murdoch. That is the truth. I love this one particular line. This is from a July 1999 independent piece talking about Mick Jagger. His bedpost is not so much notched is whittled to a fine point. <laughs> Although it sounds accurate. Mick, single again. Tumbling the dice. This is technically the end of the legal wrangling in the divorce and family courts of Britain and Wales. But worth a mention. In 2000, Mick will begin a thing with Sophie Dahl, who is the granddaughter of British author Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. And actress Patricia Neal. Spiderwebs. Hmm. This goes on for a year. Mick is going to find a new love, Loren Scott. She's a stylist and fashion designer. This lasts from 2001 until, sadly, her death in 2014. Loren dies by suicide hmm. following a period of depression. Mick will go on to set up a trust in her honor at London's Central St. Martin's College. Currently, don't worry. Leah, man, still has things to do. Currently, Mick is with a ballet dancer whose name is Melanie Hamrick. They welcomed a new baby into the world in 2016, making kid number eight. Mick, happy father, 73 years old, to Melanie's 29 years old. So, one divorce, one annulment, eight kids, five women, and a bed that could tell some stories. I don't even know how to trash can on this one. It's tough, right? I feel like he's mostly the man to blame. So I'm going to award Mick Jagger a Studio 54 full of trash cans. And all of those trash cans are filled with DNA tests. <laughs> and that is the trashy wow. divorce love saga of Leo Man Mick Jagger. It's weird how our subjects today do kind of align like just no monogamy is just not a thing to some people call me the tumble and dice i mean yeah fever in the funk house now ladies love Mick Jagger. quite the showman so there you go hope y'all enjoyed that thank you for coming back to spend your time with us this week things are a little wonky in the world right now hope you had some fun mm -hmm. going down some trash candy spider webs this week on Patreon, we're going to have so much fun. we got trashy tidbits coming up. I think I'm going to follow up on Redlands. Probably B.B. Buell. That's a really interesting story. We've got continuing Six the Musical with Queens. I'm working on a piece on the cursed Picasso. Oh, Le Rev. Yeah. Oh. It's a good story. It's a good story. And there's going to be some Hugh Hefner follow-ups, too, because, I mean, there, there were all sorts of little 
side stories that just didn't I couldn't figure out a way. We can't to... ever cover it all. On no, Sunday. and I mean the guy lived to be ninety one. I mean, it's certainly it would be possible to write a season about the life of Hugh Hefner if anybody wanted to listen to that. I don't think I would, but um, <laughs> same with Mick Jagger. Yeah. So anyway, there are a few like weird things that happened in the life of Hugh Hefner that may may warrant more talk. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We can't wait to see you back next week for the season seven finale with more listener requested wow. big, big time, big time divorces. I think I had space that we're coming to the end of a season again. I know. It goes by there so fast. It does. It goes by so fast. All right. And, and with that. Until we see you again. Keep wa- your hands clean. Wash those paws. Yeah. Keep your hearts trashy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Big cheers. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's sydneyvsmith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.